Good afternoon and welcome to this Book at Lunchtime event on Sophocles, Antigone and Other tra Tragedies, written by, or translated by, and written by Professor Oliver Chaplin. My name is uh, Wes Williams and I'm the director here at Torch. I'm delighted to be welcoming Oliver here to speak about his book today. Also on the panel are Dr. Lucy Jackson and Professor Karen Leader, who will be chairing the discussion. Sophocles, Antigone and Other Tragedies is an original and distinctive verse translation of Antigone, Deianeira and Electra. These books in um, Oliver's version convey the vitality of Sophocles' poetry and also the vigour of the plays in performance. In a moment, I'll hand over to Professor Leader, who will fully introduce the book and the rest of the panel. This will be followed by a reading by uh, Oliver from the translations. Afterwards, our commentators will present their thoughts and questions on the book, coming at it from their different uh, disciplines. We'll then give Oliver the chance to respond to some of the points raised before entering into what I hope will be a really interesting uh, broader discussion with questions also from you, the audience. So as the chat box already says, please do send your questions in as we uh, go through uh, the next hour or so. It's a great pleasure to be here to introduce this third book at lunchtime of this term from Torch. It's our flagship event series, taking the form of fortnightly bite-sized discussions with a range of commentators. In life before the pandemic, we would have invited you into a room here in Torch or here in Oxford, and there might have been lunch. One of the advantages clearly of this situation is that we can all be doing this from wherever we are, including across the world. Sadly, however, the lunch has got to be virtual, but there's certainly food for thought in what's to come. Please do take a look at our website and newsletter for the full programme next term. I'll say a bit more about this um, at the end of today's discussion. All that's left for me to do now is to thank you for coming and to introduce our chair, Karen Leader. Professor Karen Leader is Professor of Modern Languages at Oxford University and a fellow in German at New College, Oxford. She's published widely on modern German culture and is a prize-winning translator and writer, a prize-winning translator of contemporary German literature, most especially poetry. Recently winning the English Pen Award and the American Pen Heim Award for her translation of Ulrike Almutsandich. She was a while back a Torch Exchange Knowledge Exchange Fellow with the South Bank Centre and since then uh, she works with MPT, uh, Modern Poetry and Translation, Poet in the City, the Poetry Society and has a brilliant project which I would recommend you go and have a look at online which is called Mediating Modern Poetry. Karen thanks ever so much for chairing today's uh, panel. I'll hand over to you now and return for questions uh, towards the end. Thank you very much Wes. Um, I'm delighted to be here and with no further ado because I know we've got so much exciting material to cover I'd like to introduce um, first of all uh, Oliver Taplin but also Lucy Jackson and then we'll move to uh, Oliver Taplin's reading. So Professor Oliver Taplin is an Emeritus Professor of Classics at Oxford University. Uh, his research has focused on the reception of poetry and drama, particularly uh, through performance and material culture in both ancient and modern times. He co-founded the Archive um, of Performance of Greek and Roman Drama and has collaborated on a number of high-profile uh, theatre productions in recent, which becomes important, I think, because we've got to remember this is drama we're, we're talking about. In recent years, he has turned his attention to translating Greek drama as verse to be spoken and performed. Dr. Lucy Jackson is Assistant Professor in Classics and Ancient History at Durham University. Her research focuses on ancient Greek and Roman theatre and performance again, Neo-Latin translations of Greek drama, and the reception of classical theatre in the 16th century, and translation studies and theory in the ancient and modern worlds. The most recent publication is The Chorus of Drama in the 4th Century BCE. So now I'd like to invite um, Oliver Taplin uh, to present some readings uh, from this wonderful book, Sophocles, Antigone, uh, and Other Verse Tragedies, other verse tragedies, uh, which is out this year with OUP.
Oliver, you're muted. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm unmuted now. Uh, thank you, Karen. Um, it, it's great to have a captive audience, uh, semi as long as you don't press the leave button down in the right-hand corner. Uh, I'm going to read you uh, brief extracts, a brief extract from each of the three plays in this volume, um, plays which I've uh, thought of together as being Sophocles' female plays. The other volume has Sophocles' four male plays. So one extract from each play to give you some idea of the kind of registers and the kind of uh, rhythms that I've attempted to bring out. So first, Deianira. Deianira is more familiarly known as, um, as Trachinii, or the women of Trachis, um, but I've preferred Deianira um, so that all, who is, she is the leading woman of the play, uh, so that um, uh, each of the three plays is named after its leading woman. Um, it's the least known probably of Sophocles' plays. I think it um, should be much better known. It's a wonderful play. Um, it brings together in a very um, modern way, really, um, monstrosity the mon and monstrous deeds of men and domesticity and settlement and lust and sex is the link between the two that destroys them both. Um, and to give you the setting for this reading, um, Heracles has been away, he's been away a long time on various uh, expeditions. He's now returning victorious um, and he's sent ahead um, his, the, the woman who is his latest infatuation. Um, and she, he, uh, Deianira has discovered <clears throat> that he means to keep her, keep uh, this uh, young beauty in her house. And in this um, extract that I'm going to read, she comes outside to confide in the women uh, of the chorus um, what, she, what she means to do about this. <clears throat> so Deianira coming out, talking to the chorus. I've slipped out secretly to you, dear women, while our visitor is talking to those captive girls inside before he goes. I want to tell you of the action that I have in hand and seek your sympathy for what I'm going through. I have, you see, let in a girl, and yet no more a simple girl, I think, a fully harnessed woman. I've taken her on board the way a merchant stows a cargo, but these goods will wreck my peace of mind. And now, the two of us shall lie beneath a single coverlet and wait to see which one he will embrace. Is this the kind of payment that the so-called good and trusty Heracles has sent me in return for caring for his house through such a stretch of time? I'm not able to be angry with him when he's afflicted with so virulent a fever. Yet, what woman could bear living with her here and share in one man's making love? I'm aware how youth for one of us is coming into bloom and fading from the other, and how men's eyes will turn from that and want to pick the flower. And so my fear is that while Heracles will be name my husband, he shall really be the younger woman's male. So I'll now read you a piece from Electra. Uh, if we can change the slide. There we are. <clears throat> Thank you. Um, this is, um, so that, that, that speech from Deianira has a kind of restrained resentment behind it. I mean, it's, it's deeply uh, emotional and, and jealous, but at the same time, she's, she's holding, holding back um, in order to reveal what it is that she's going to do. And I hope you heard the kind of iambic pulse uh, that there is beneath, beneath the, the lines. Now, this extract from Electra also iambic pulse, but from a much, much more emotional scene. And I think you'll see why I um, have not gone for a regular uh, line length, uh, because the advantage of varying the, the length of line and varying the endings of lines between strong and weak syllables um, is very clear here. This is the most famous scene in the play in many ways. <clears throat> um, uh, Electra has been waiting years for her brother Orestes to come home and avenge uh, the uh, murder of their, their father Agamemnon. Uh, she doesn't know that he's come back 
um, in, in disguise. And there is a pretense, there's a, a plot by which he's pretend, it's been pretended that he's dead. And he has now arrived with an urn which is meant to contain his ashes. And Electra laments over this urn, the most terrible, heart-rending lament. And he stands there, the person she's lamenting for, uh, through it, um, unable uh, to know what to do until the end. So um, here is the very end of uh, Electra's lament over the urn. But our bad fortune, yours and mine, has taken all of that and sent you to me in this form instead of your dear flesh and blood, this ash and futile shadow. Ah, ah, so pitiful your body, sent on such a dreadful journey, and you had destroyed me, dearest, brought destruction on me, brother. So now, please let me in, receive me into this, your home, the nothing me into your nothing place, so I may dwell with you below for all of time. For when you were up here, I used to share in everything with you, and now I long to die, so that I'll never be deprived of being with you, even in the grave. And then Antigone, of course, the, I mean, the best known of all of Sophocles' plays, perhaps the best known of all Greek tragedies. Um, I'll read you a piece of lyric. That's to say this is what's usually known as a choral ode. Um, I'll read, read you two stanzas. They both have the same um, meter. They come after the great confrontation scene between Crane and Antigone, where they confront each other and sort of talk uh, across each other. They they miss each other with their with their 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 their, their stances. Um, and then the lyric, uh, the chorus dwell on the kind of uh, destruction, the kind of the, uh, disaster that can hang around a, a house, a family uh, once things go wrong. Um, and for the meters of my choruses, I've not tried to replicate in any way the Greek meter, which is, works on a very different metric in any case. Um, and I've just found my own rhythms for, e for, each, for each pair of stanzas. Um, and uh, I've, generally speaking, made, made use of rhyme, except that I use a lot of half rhyme, quarter rhyme, para rhyme. And in this particular one, because it's about the way that things have become disjointed, uh, have gone wrong in this kind of chain of disaster, I don't even really use rhyme so much as what one might call sound patterns between the closing words of lines. And then there are some internal rhymes within the lines until the last line of each stanza. So here are these two stanzas, which ideally I'd love to have them set to music. Um, they, should, they, they should be sung, they shouldn't be spoken. Um, but that's... Um, that's a, a dream. <clears throat> Happy the life that's lived all untainted by taste of bad. Utter disaster pours on the family and the house, shaken by gods from above, just the way the rolling wave, stirred by a north wind storm, moves sweeping above the gloom, churning up from the bed of the ocean, the black silt cloud loud on the headland shore the ranks of the breakers roar from long ago the pains of this dynasty pile upon pains constantly from the dead so the family cannot get freed always some god bears down so they never can break the chain oedipus house was bright with the light of its latest root now that has been cut through by the blade of the gods below Blooded by foolish speech and by thoughts beyond reason's reach. Thank you for listening. Uh, thank you so much for that. It was wonderful to hear it. Um, you talked about, uh, you know, the, the important sort of uh, qualities of the, the sound and hopefully getting them performed and even sung some of these uh, uh, versions. Um, but it was wonderful to hear it and I think very important. Um, I have the uh, honour to, to kick off um, uh, to respond and then I shall pass to uh, Dr Lucy Jackson. 
Um, but I, by way of um, a kind of immediate uh, three uh, swerves or apologies um, or tropes of the outsider, I should say, of course, that I'm not a classicist. I generally work on the contemporary. Um, I, although I have translated some dead uh, classics myself, um, where I guess some of the questions might be the same. But also, um, I'm not imbued with the scholarly context, of course. I don't read ancient Greek. Um, and nor do I generally work with drama. So I feel that on multiple levels, I, I come at some questions, uh, some uh, these texts as an outsider. But of course, I'm fascinated as a translator by the many micro decisions that go up to make, as it were, a finished product and a, and a, and a way of addressing the text. So I hope that um, my thoughts here have coalesced really into much less a statement, as it were, or a response, but four and a half questions, uh, really, uh, with some preamble coming from this outside perspective. Um, you And the first is the, tr the position of the translator. Um, in your introduction, uh, your prologue, rather, you say that um, this version that you've done, these versions, um, might now be considered, um, uh, might once have been considered rather free and might now be considered as rather close um, to the originals. Um, and that prompted me to think about, of course, the context in which we translate um, and how much we position ourselves as translators. Um, not only as a general translator, but you're in a particular position, of course, which is the scholarly translator who sits between the academy and a, and a general audience. Um, and that prompted me to think, you mentioned Heaney and Harrison, of course, two great models, there's Anne Carson as well, of course, there. But I wondered really whether you compare the translations um, with these other uh, translations that are, as it were, out there in the world as sort of public translations, as it were, not academic translations in the strictest sense, in the strictest sense. Um, but also how you respond to these translations that are in the world where the translator doesn't know the original language. I often think it might be rather a benefit not to know the original language when translating. Um, I don't any longer do that. I have done that occasionally. Um, but of course, you're imbued with the context and your scholarly introduction and notes allow you to be both a scholar and a translator. Uh, in this edition, and I'm, I was fascinated in a way how the two versions of yourself, your two positions, um, work together, coalesced, contradicted each other, perhaps on occasions. So the position um, of the translator. Uh, um, the second uh, sort of area which really struck me and which I was fascinated by and which you alluded to in your introduction is um, a uh, question of the technical. Um, of course, this is something every translator has to face. And you quote um, Joseph Brodsky, I think really helpfully, saying that a translation is a search for an equivalent, um, not for a substitute. Uh, and hence your interest in the, the verse translation. Um, I thoroughly agree. Hölderlin, the great translator, the German poet and great translator also from the Greek, talked about finding um, a material that was foreign and analogous, something that spoke to the spirit, um, but which acknowledged in its foreignness also that the moment of its, uh, its own being. Um, and I particularly was interested in the form, of course, because it's verse, and I'm so pleased you did verse. Um, I've just emerged from a huge verse translation myself uh, of a kind of epic. So I, I'm very uh, thinking about this a great, have been thinking about this a great deal. Um, your choice not to go for iambic pentameters as, as say Emily Wilson did in her translation, um, obviously of the Odyssey, um, but to find something that sits not quite comfortably in English, it seems to me, and I, I, I hope you don't take that as a criticism, but these trimeters, for example, the, of the Greek, um, and the varying line lengths in the English fit. There's a dynamism about them, but I'm interested in the decision not to go for something that we re immediately recognize, iambic pentameter, but to go for something um, that's in between, slightly unsettled. Uh, you talked about a pulse that's basically uh, iambic. Um, and also then these fantastic pieces uh, from the lyrical 
dialogues which you you mentioned there and we got a snippet of one which are rhymed or pa use para rhyme um, and are very contemporary it seems to me really contemporary in the use of the para rhyme and that the soundscapes rather than close rhyme it leads to a related issue which is that it struck me as a very anglo-saxon translation really pacey um, and i think the choice of anglo-saxon words led to that so quite far from, from a sort of Latinate or Greek uh, rhythm in that sense. And I wondered if you, that's geared to the dramatic presentation, whether you were conscious of that, whether you're doing it, when you're doing it, or whether it came out as it were in your, in your approach. Um, that leads to a, a kind of larger sense, uh, question about foreignness. And this raises questions of, how foreign the translation is or how far it's domesticated into our uh into a recognizable form and as i've hinted and i think you wanted your translation sits somewhere between recognizing the surprise of the foreignness and allowing it to be there um but also sitting enough within our range of vocabulary that we feel comfortable but then are constantly um surprised now of course this could be seen as against a, a backdrop of uh translation theory, uh, Schleiermacher talks about this, um, uh, various translators, uh, translation theorists have since. Do you deal with translation theory? Um, uh, I say straight away, I don't, I never do really apart from teaching it, but when I'm translating it's me in the text, but I'd be very interested as to, as to whether you think about questions of foreignness or domestication abstractly, or whether it's about micro choices um in the in the text itself um and that brings me to a kind of next um area really um you wrote really helpfully about the afterlife life of these plays and the reason they're so um profoundly uh, important in, in modern culture and have continued to be across the century as being about their kind of mixture of the combination of the immediate and the remote is what you call it which links with what we've just been talking about of course um, but also they're capacious enough, in a sense, for, for people to be called on time and again to respond to them, keep translating them and keep rethinking um, them. Um, I, I suppose what interested me very much is, is in a few places, you, and, and just then you sort of said it again, you talk about a 21st century perspective. Um, uh, for example, in Dianera, um, the character herself, um, has often been thought of you explain as unlikable or deceitful or stupid but on the contrary she strikes us very strongly from the 21st perspective century perspective as understandable and forgivable and immediate and i was interested in whether you think of these characters as psychologically complete and whole and whether greek audiences would have um thought in that way at all um Antigone too, of course, uh, very powerfully, um, uh, when Ismay says to her, you're in love with what's not possible, it seemed to me, you know, a profound character insight um, there. So are these coherent characters, really? It's a psychological question. Um, but secondly, then, what comes out in a 21st century reading? I think psychology is a 21st century thing. I think we're interested in that. But also power, dilemmas of power. And it seemed to me you really just nailed Creon so brilliantly with a very contemporary vocabulary, things not happening on my watch or the, pa the, the, the dilemmas of power. And the, the final thing, the half thing, I suppose, is gender, which I wanted to raise, um, which links with issues of authority and psychology, of course. Um, and the last uh, production I saw of Antigone was Juliette Binoche up in Edinburgh um, in the kind of fascinating production, 2015, uh, Ivo van Hoover, where she um, very much uh, talked about uh, Creon as a, as a misogynist. And it was seen as a very gendered and, and powerfully gendered intervention into the, the text. And I wondered where you stood. Of course, Emily Wilson, when she translated, uh, you know, very complicated ways, got hailed as the first female translator, which isn't true, but had a, a kind of gendered intervention in the text. And, and I was fascinated that you'd chosen these female texts and set them against the male texts. And so I'm wondering really whether there is a 
kind of female language at play here uh, in these texts that's distinctive in, to your mind from the male language in the earlier plays which you translated. Um, and finally, I noticed the words miasma and sickness and illness and contagion come up again and again. And I wondered whether that is something, of course, that reading now we particularly notice and seems to be uh, incredibly striking uh, to us. So uh, the context. And so perhaps there are my four and a half questions. Uh, I've noticed I've had my time. So I'm going to pass on to Professor, uh, to Dr. Lucy Jackson, who I'm sure will bring uh, a more classical point of view to bear on these wonderful texts. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Karen. Um, uh, and uh, thanks everyone for being here. Thank you for inviting me to, to talk about this. Uh, it's a real de delight, if not slightly surreal, to be um, speaking because uh, I was not only taught tragedy, but I was also taught translation by, by Oliver. And so to be, um, have the opportunity to, to kind of almost read back all of the learning that I have had from him um, in wonderful ways uh, with this latest translation of his is, um, is a real treat. So I want to thank you um, all. Almost picking up on what um, Karen just uh, sort of ended with thinking about the subject of these plays, I think it is a really wonderful thing for these three women plays uh, to be put together. They're great plays in their own right, a great place to be featuring and uh, to be returning to for some of us, um, but they are a really great place to have as a triptych, I think. Um, as Oliver notes in, in his introduction, these are plays with women very much at their centre. This is one of, the, uh, one of the reasons why Greek tragedy is particularly popular nowadays, because it has these fantastic weighty female parts. Um, but also something that I particularly noticed in light of some, um, some classical scholarship recently is that they feature not just women, but women being with other women as well. Um, sisters, mothers and daughters. Um, and, and that I think is particularly interesting and lends itself to some very immediate uh, commentary in political theory. There is a lot of collaboration going on now between classics and political theory and the idea of sisterhood. So in Antigone with, with Antigone and Ismene, in the Electra between Electra and Chrysothemis is a really hotly debated topic at the moment. So this is, this is not just a, a wonderful addition um, to have, but it's also very timely, I think, and the way that these three plays talk to each other um, should provoke and prompt lots of interesting conversations. Um, what I like, and again, this is something that um, Karen noted already, is uh, that, um, in these translations, we don't shy away from the strangeness of Greek tragedy. Again, this is something that um, Olive will know from his decades of scholarship on Greek tragedy, but they do sit in, in between a world of, that's very familiar and is also mythical and very far away. And I certainly really appreciate that uh, nowadays, this sort of, um, that these translations stand against an impulse maybe to make something very familiar for new audiences or old audiences to make it perhaps slightly more easily to to easy to consume uh, or completely domesticate to use the translation theory term. Um, these are plays that uh, in, in the Greek too and for their original audiences posed difficult questions. They were, they were something for us to get our brains around. Um, as well as our mouths, to get our mouths around them. Um, these are plays for, for speaking. Um, and I really liked how, how there were th throughout um, these, these touches which made you kind of just think again, not quite a, an alienation effect uh, in a sort of Brechtian way, but um, phrases that were both beautiful but out of the ordinary as well, sort of cramming me full of, full of rage. Um, this of course also lends itself sometimes to sort of slots like other echoes that couldn't be um, couldn't be predicted. Um, this is a, a tiny question that I had, but one of the things that Antigone says is she she says that she's been cancelled from her own wedding. And nowadays, when we have all of this uh, um, discourse about cancellation, whether that's that was an intended effect or it is one of these uh, moments when just depending on your own approach to it, you suddenly think, oh, where where, where am I now? Um, so being able to exist in a, in a kind of uh, place of tension while reading these plays I think is is really wonderful and very valuable and something that that um, these translations excel in. Uh, I came at this um, as Karen said from a classics perspective but also from a teaching perspective and also um, 
I'm, a, I'm a, something of a choral nut myself. I'm always interested in the chorus of Greek tragedy and, and their own strangeness. So I thought I would look particularly at, at, um, at these translations from those two perspectives. Uh, I, was, I was really delighted, but, but not at all surprised at how the, the, the choral songs, the lyrics were, were rendered um, in these translations. Uh, to take one example, I, I, this was set on a course that I taught last year, the, the opening choral song um, in Dianera. Uh, there's a very, it almost has a very, very famous opening image of, of a kind of starry night. And I know for a fact that this is a, the, the word ayola um, used in the Greek uh, is, um, has, a, has a heritage of its own because it's, it turns up in a weird way in, in Martin Crimp's Cruel and Tender um, as this sort of very important um, adjective, a way of describing a, a mood almost at the beginning of, of the play. And uh, having read gazillions of translations of this opening ode in the last year, I was so delighted to, to feel um, how fresh this version was. I wasn't surprised at all, but to use glimmering as a way of translating this, this um, very shifty word in, in the ancient Greek, I thought was, was just wonderful. Um, the whole, that whole ode, I, it, it felt fresh and crunchy at the same time. Um, it was a bit like treading out in some of the snow that we've had recently. It gave that feeling of, ah, oh, this is, this is something new. So that was a, a real, a real delight. Um, I thought delightful too was the way that the, the language in the choral odes really reverberates out to the rest of the play. Um, I, the, the chorus is often problematic for for readers um, and also for people, audiences, for how to understand what they are. I think uh, Oliver's formulation of, of what the choral role is, that they kind of look at what is happening, they, they get us to look at what is happening and, and take it on, um, is absolutely right. Um, but I also then appreciate how these odes feed into the rest of the play and pick up images or echoes that then complicate how we're meant to be thinking about what's going on. So an image of a yoke in uh, what's often referred to as the, the ode to man, uh, again, wonderfully translated ode to human, as I'm now going to refer to it, Oliver, um, ode to humans. Uh, that image of a yoke picks up something that Creon's already said about what it is to govern, that it's about yoking people to your will, which is already kind of interesting uh, way of framing things. But when we hear it then echoed again in that, in that famous um, ode, uh, it immediately gets me anyway as a as a as an audience member as a as a reader uh, complicating who that ode is really aimed at um, there seems to be a very clear message about how wonderful humans are and their, their wonderful invention and then at the end of the ode uh, a question mark is raised about you know whether whether all of that is entirely good and that being brought into context with Creon I think is is fantastic as I knew I would, I'm running beyond my time because there were so many wonderful things that I wanted to talk about um, in this. Uh, but uh, as a last point, again, echoing uh, something that Karen said, but also really drilling down, down into what is happening in the Greek meter, that is something that is absolutely wonderfully rendered, not in trying to find exactly the same rhythm, but finding this really pacey, um, pulse-driven, uh, um, transverse translation for for some of these odes. Um, it, it provides so much material for, for thought and for teaching with um, and I'm so glad that these these are now available as a resource for, for us. Thinking about Greek tragedy is always fun but it's it's even more fun when you have a good translation that adds layers to that complication for, for what we can think about and get from these tragedies today. So Thank you very much, um, Oliver, for that. And I'll, I'll hand back uh, over uh, to Karen. Well, thank you uh, so much, Lucy. I'm fascinated that there was a sort of stereo effect going on that we both um, picked up some of the same things, but from very different perspectives. Um, and so now we have some time um, to bring back Oliver and uh, uh, to ask him to respond to some of the things we've said. Um, 
there's so much to talk about, but I, I, I think I would like to kick off. But Oliver, you can always kick off somewhere else if you if you want to um, and overrule me um, with this idea that that uh, both of us finished with in, in, in a way, which is this sense of how you position yourself between and, and how consciously that was um, done between the, the strange and the familiar uh, that goes both to your position as a sort of scholarly translator who knows the full extent of that strange uh, other from which you're bringing the text, but also um, to the fact of the, the translation itself, even down to the, the nitty gritty of the, the verse forms. I think both of us agreed very much that it's a powerful and pacey and very immediate translation. Um, I could hear it in people's mouths, you know, I could hear people acting this and singing this, but also it holds that strangeness um, and I'm, I'm very interested in, in, in how you achieved that, how consciously you achieved it, how you worked at it, uh, and the choices you made. Yes, well, I, I, thank you. Um, uh, I was very taken with your talking about micro-translating, uh, because in, in a sense, you know, in, 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 um, I found the uh, notions of domestication and foreignization very useful talking about other people's translations. Um, and, and yet I've actually found in my own, in my own practice that it somehow breaks down. Um, that uh, um, as, you, as you, I think, brought out, you, you, want, you, you want both. Um, you want to make it accessible. Accessibility, you know, is, is absolutely crucial. So you, you, you can't translate in such a way that people have got to look at footnotes the whole time. Um, but at the same time, you, you, you've got to be able to surprise. You've got to be able to shock. You've got to be able to jolt. Um, and um, I, I was interested in what you pointed out, Karen, that on the whole, I've used, I haven't used a lot of Latinate language. Mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot of, lot of monosyllables. <clears throat> and yet somehow by using uh, monosyllables, and not not using the the um, what I think of as more more French language, more more polysyllabic language. Um, you can you can often actually get a get a jolt, um, and, um, and 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 wake it up in in that way. So the the fact is, I think that while I'm aware of a certain amount of translation theory, I, I think I go in for what a friend once called um, practice led theory rather than theory-led practice. <laughs> um, afterwards, I can look at it, but uh, it, it actually, in the, in the actual process, just terribly difficult to analyze. Um, uh, it, it, it is a million micro choices. Every single word uh, has to be a choice, even the smallest words. Um, that fits with Lucy's question in a sense, doesn't it? About, about, about the micro level, for example, this one word that she picked up, um, uh, 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 and, and you now have become part that links with a question that's just come in um, from Rebecca Watts. You, you've, we'll go formally to the audience in a second, but I just noticed it because it was what I was thinking of, um, that you're part of the reception history now with this choice of word and future translators will, <laughs> will look to that and take it as an authority, take it as an intervention, take it as part of a history. Um, Lucy Oliver, the, the place of the translator, you know, in this, in this continuum. Yeah. Yes, well, I mean, uh, it's, it's a marvellous thought to even think that anybody's going to be reading it in 10 years time, let alone 25 years time. Um, but um, uh, it is interesting, you, you asked Karen right at the beginning, did I look at other people's translations? And, and the answer is no, actually. I mean, I'm, of course, I know Seamus Heaney's translation, I know uh, Anne Carson's translation. It, it actually happened, I was giving a, a seminar on translation practice at Ann Arbor, and it was a passage of, of De Anira, in fact, though a different passage, the one where uh, Nessus uh, gives her a ride over the river and, um, uh, and uh, is, is shot by Heracles. And there I was, taught, and then there in the audience was Anne Carson. As you can imagine, that was, that was rather terrifying. And somebody asked, well, do you look at other people's translations? When are you constantly got other translations in front of you to, to compare? And rather, uh, rather uh, terrified, I, I said, well, no, I don't. Unfortunately, Anne Carson said she didn't either. So, <laughs> but, um, but so no, I don't, I don't look at other people's translations as I go along. So I'm not aware actually of when I'm sharing words with, 
with other people and when I'm finding my own, I, I, it, it's, it, in, a, in some ways it's quite lonely. Um, and uh, in other ways, it's a, it's a shame that it's lonely because I, I, every phrase I use, I obviously read to myself. I say it out loud to myself as I do it, but I'd like to hear other people um, saying it as well. Um, and Joyce, I, I love Lucy's pointing out of cancelled, which was actually, I don't think the, that use of cancelled was so current when I translated it three or four years ago. Um, and um, uh, once though in, um, in my translation of, of Ajax or IAS, I used the word Twitter. Um, before, and then fortunately, um, I was able to change it to something else because the word Twitter became so, so um, um, familiar in a different context. Lucy, did you want to come in there? Well, I, I, I suppose I want to draw in on that because you mentioned in, in your translator's note, again, kind of just um, fully embracing it, the role of intuition, or do, do you use the word intuition? I don't know about, um, and you've spoken, um, I mean, I've, well, I've heard you talk about this, how you see things just kind of mulch down and settle in. And, and so certainly not looking at translations while you're doing it, but to what extent do you feel that kind of, um, what is it? I'm not a geologist. The kind of the sediment that's been building up of, of not just your work as a scholar, but um, your teaching of translation, and then all of the talks that happen at the APGRD. Um, that's where I remember the the Martin Crimp thing from. One of the events that were done there. Yes, yes he came. Yes, yes. Um, um, how you swear that, that? That's interesting, and I mean, uh, um, uh, Karen raised this point of to what extent uh, being a scholar translator um, change, changes things. And I, I think you're right that in some ways um, the, the, the weight of scholarship uh, is a drag. Um, sometimes, uh, you know, I mean, and some, some of the best translations, of course, are done by people who, who, who don't have that because they, they're, they're liberated in a sense. Um, and I can't, I can't get away from that. Uh, you know, it's been my, it's been my job. Um, but um, I think what you're saying, Lucy, is right that it's kind of, sedimented um as as i translate i don't think scholarship uh, i think i think sound i think movement uh, and, and i do think accessibility I, I i i i want people to be able to hear it uh, and understand it while at the same time as we've been saying all along that doesn't mean making it simple and making it easy and and, and domesticating in fact uh in, in many ways the opposite. Let me pick up something else that Lucy raised um, and that also sort of featured in, in my response, which is this question of bringing the three texts together. And Lucy, um, it was really helpful then to, to remind me in a sense that bringing them together was a political act actually, um, and a scholarly act, and it creates a possibility of, you know, thinking about these texts together. Um, but I, as a translator, was more interested in um, whether you found links between them on the linguistic level, whether they were distinct from the male plays, uh, in a sense. So there are two, I think, you know, two perspectives there on this question of the, the women's plays. And I, I'm very fascinated to hear, you know, for you, what they perhaps started as and what they ended up as, actually. Yes, yes, that's, that's very interesting. And I thought, you know, what you were asking about psychology was interesting. I mean, it seems to me, you know, the what trend, uh, I'm going to, talk big here what tragedy does is draw its audience into the inside the skins of the people who are undergoing these terrible uh, dilemmas and sufferings uh, that draws them into understanding them into into um so i don't want to use sympathize or empathize because it's more it's more complicated than that but draws them into a kind of uh, into their world and um that's it. It's extraordinary that the, the the men who created Greek tragedy for an audience of men in a very male-dominated society and so on, somehow for some reason felt it important to get inside the skin of of, of women, uh, to get 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 into the into a gendered a gendered way of seeing the world. And of course, that's what I've had to try to do. I mean, you know, here I am, the, the, the least fashionable translator, an elderly white male. I mean, how, how bad can it get? Um, and, um, but, I, but I found it, I found it personally, actually, quite a powerful experience to try and, try and understand 
the women of these tragedies and and to make and to make them uh, understandable um but whether i've actually made lexical choices it's the, it's the micro level again i think i mean you know when i translate a, a woman's speech i uh, I try to translate with a woman's thought, if you know what I mean. Um, but I haven't actually consciously sorted my vocabulary into into sort of male ways of putting things and female ways of putting things. It's, it's not as schematic as that. No, I, I'm, I'm sure that's right. I think translation is never schematic, is it? Now, we're coming up against our time when we open to the audience. But Oliver, I, I'm very conscious. Would you, is there anything you particularly wanted to pick up out of... Um, our responses that you wanted to respond to before we open to the audience. Well, I'm, I mean, there was so much, and both of you said such interesting things. I'd love to have a longer conversation. Um, I, I, one thing that certainly, um, uh, out of what Lucy said, it it it, uh, it is true that actually I found the translation of the choruses the most challenging and the most interesting, and also the place where I've actually felt most creative. I mean, one reason I love doing translation. Uh, and I've only had time to do it in retirement is because there, there is a there is a creativity to it um, you're not you're not just following you're also making and uh, I've I found that the translation of the lyrics of choruses and I've translated the Oristire as well um, has has been the thing that I've uh, I found most rewarding and I, I like to think that maybe it's also what readers and and performers might find most rewarding can I say straight away, I did. I, I was going to say the same, my favourites. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant. Well, we're unanimous, but I think it's time to bring um, the audience in. And at this point, I think I hand over back to Wes, who will field some more general questions. Hello, hello, hello. Um, thank you. Um, what an amazing discussion so far. This is great fun, and it's really, really interesting and clearly... Well, I've got my own questions, but I'm here to put forward audience questions, at least to start with. So um, I will do. And there, there's some great questions here, too. Um, the I want to start actually with the second one, because it seems to me to pick up on the discussion that's already happened a bit um, between uh, the, the four of you. Um, the question is from Keith and says the famous debate scene between Antigone and his men parallels and possibly alludes to a similar scene in what he's calling the women of Trachis, where two sisters similarly argue about similar issues. So again, it's about how much you see these plays in relation to each other. Do you think of these scenes as in dialogue with each other when you're translating? Um, I don't think I do, actually. Um, it's an interesting uh, question. Um, and the, 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 the pairs of sisters, for example, that Lucy alluded to, the yep. pair of sisters in Antigone and the pair of sisters in Electra. Um, but uh, I, on the whole, I think, I've, I, 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 I think of each play um, as um, a, contain, a container, a contained play. And one thing that I certainly haven't done is, and I've deliberately tried to get away from, is this notion that people have of the Sophocles, what they call the Theban trilogy. It's not a trilogy mm -hmm. at all. They're three quite separate plays, the two Oedipus plays in Antigone. Um, and um, actually, Oedipus of Colonus does, does have a relationship to the other plays. But, um, but I think on the whole, it's an interesting question, but I don't, I don't think I do think of the, the scenes as uh, interplaying across plays. Of course, you've got to remember, Sophocles composed 120 plays. He composed uh, 90 tragedies, probably, and we've, we've got yeah. seven of them. Yeah, yeah. Okay, thank you. The other, another question um, going in a slightly different direction, although there's quite a few questions asking this sort of scholarship, how much do you need to know, how much do you not need to know, sort of, uh, uh, in, that, in that field. Um, and there's another question from Keith, which is um, the famous messenger speech at the beginning um it's highly comical and almost parodic um do you are you conscious of rendering uh, or basically how do you make room for comedy and parody in in a in a tragedy so this is the, the guard the guard who yes in, in antigone yes um or again do you not think of it as comic and parodic 
No, no, I don't think I do think of it as comic and prose. No, no. <laughs> right. I mean, and co comic is complicated because, of course, there was yep. in the same drama festivals there were comedies. Yeah. But, but comedy is not the same as um, yep. uh, as comic in the modern sense of the word. Uh, he does. He speaks with a different register, quite definitely, and I think I've, 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 I hope I've brought that out. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, on, on insofar as there are uh, comic. Um, uh, elements in in Greek uh, tragedy. I think it's a chiaroscuro matter, you know, that that the dark is darker yeah. for, for for the light, right. and the darkness of of, of of Antigone having gone so far in defiance of Creon is actually brought out by by the lightness of the messenger who says, "Well, I'm very sorry, very sorry about Antigone, but at least I'm safe." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, another question um, is um, about kind of the relationship between um, sort of knowing and not knowing Greek. So uh, Gita Ramanathan has asked, is it actually possible to translate these Greek texts without a scholarly background? Um, and asks, for example, um, how would you compare your translation um, with Hughes, for example, Ted Hughes's version? In other words, because Karen, again, this picks up with what Karen said and in the way you've answered this already in terms of the drag of scholarship but somebody has to tell you what the Greek means to begin with don't they? Mm. Well I mean obviously it can be done I mean Seamus Heaney when he he, he translated both Philoctetes and, and yep. Antigone and he said that he had three or four versions open uh, in front of him and he would kind of go between them and somehow uh, distill, it, distill it out of that. Um, some, some of the best translations ha have been done by people who don't know the source language. Um, but, um, as you say, somebody has to tell them. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> um, and they have, to, they have to find their ways of getting access to, to it somehow. Um, yeah. So, it, it is a different thing, but, but um, as I say, when I when I translate, I don't. I, I'm not thinking scholarly questions the whole time. I have to worry right. about the text, of course. Um, yeah. And um, you know, you and you, are you thinking about Eng? I mean, you're clearly thinking about English because one of the questions says, "Is your work? Does your work as a translator make you think more in a more complicated way about the history of English or the different moments in English?" And again, in a way, you've already addressed that with the the, the presence of Twitter or of cancel or as Karen said at the end of miasma sickness contagion i mean yes. presumably i mean this is a question for all all three of you really how how does working as a translator or thinking about foreign texts make you think differently about english yes well i think i think i think it's help it's help uh, it, it's quite um it's quite positive actually the effect on how one thinks of one's own own language i think it enables you to find new ways of expression and uh, uh, and new uh, forces and, and uh, rhythms within it. Um, mm -hmm. Not so much periodization, I don't think. Um, I mean, I've, I, I don't think I ever, I very seldom would use an archaic word for, for as, an, as an archaism, if you know what I mean. Um, uh, mm -hmm. Again, that's to do with accessibility. I mean, if you, if you use an archaic word, in a sense, you foreignize. Um, Karen, you're nodding vigorously here. Do you want to say more about how this relates to yeah. English? Yeah, no, no, I, I think a lot about this. Um, I, I think, you know, close engagement with a foreign um, language um, changes your, the possibilities of your, your own expression in English. Mm. It's pathways or possibilities which didn't exist before. And I think um, I remember going to a... a, a um, production of all seven of history's uh, Shakespeare's history plays over one weekend and I came out talking in iambic pentameter. Nothing <laughs> <laughs> else to be done. Um, but, but more seriously it, it opens your language to possibilities and it refines your language and it makes your own language richer and more various um, it seems to me. But I would also like to put in a plug for the scholarly translator. I think you know, there's a fashion at the moment for what I call the celebrity translation. I don't mean uh, to be derisive about Hughes or Heaney or anybody, um, but that triangulation that you talked about in, in terms of Heaney with his, his translations in front of him, that's in your head. You've already 
that, this vast penumbra around every word that is the scholarly background, you boil it down, you know, into a kind of pebble of knowledge and there it is in that word. And then you don't have all the footnotes, you know, telling everyone what it's about, but you're doing it already. And so I, you know, praise for the scholarly translator is what I say. Yep. Yep, yep. <laughs> Lucy, did you want to add to this? Well, I only to... Uh, sacrilegiously move away from language but uh, again comment on a choice um, made in this translation particularly uh, apparent in the Dianera which is how to translate e.g cries of pain that is something that often gets talked about in the classroom because Greek the ancient Greek has these particular ways of, of communicating that with you know popoi da or ah 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 and things and the conversations that I then have with my students often hilariously very buttoned up shy students who don't want to be enacting cries of pain I say well what would you say if this was in English what what, what is the way that we communicate that and it's and it does sort of take them a while to think well yeah how to I'm being eaten alive by a poisoned cloak. What would, what would I do? Um, so, so in that sense, it does open up more conversations about how how we express ourselves as well, and and really an invitation to perform in a in a dry and dusty philology Greek translation class. So, um, I thought that was a really interesting decision that you made to make it stage directions, Oliver, in in yours rather than try and find a yes. More, I felt that some translations, uh, um, I think even that Anne Carson sometimes transliterates. The, mm -hmm. the Greek, the Greek cry. Yeah. Although, what the relationship between the phonetics of the of our transliteration and the and the cry as it might have been made by uh, in the Greek theatre, is it remains an open question. Yes. So, yeah. Uh, in a sense, it's an evasion to put in a, a stage direction and say, mm -hmm. you know, cries out, mm -hmm. cries out in pain or cries mm -hmm. in distress or something. But I felt actually it was better for the reader, uh, for the listener, to fill that in. Mm -hmm. yeah. There are one or two more questions, but I'd like to ask one of my own, if I may, and it relates to the very first passage that you read, and in fact, the last word of the first passage, um, and that's the word male. Yeah. Because um, it struck me as such an amazing decision to put male at the end. Um, can you explain it, please? <laughs> or at least explain the thinking that goes into that decision, yes. you know, as opposed to man or you know, bloke, or, I mean, there's all, obviously you're not going to write bloke, but, but male is such a strong word to put there at the end of that little sequence. Oh, thank you. Over, over dramatising that, I mean, it seems to me a real jolt. Yeah. I had exactly the same response. I had it ringed in, on my oh, table. That's interesting. Because right. I, there, there I did also have another passage in mind, actually, a passage in Euripides Hippolytus, where the, oh. nurse, says, the nurse says to the Phaedra, says to Phaedra, um, uses the, I mean, the Greek word is, is the word for man. Um, um, so, you know, it says, I'll be called his, I'll be called his, uh, he'll be called my husband, but um, she'll be called his, no, let me get this right. Um, uh, um, he'll be a husband, he'll be called my husband, but he'll be called her man. Um, mm -hmm. But I, 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 I thought that it was more explicitly sexual than that. And it's definitely very explicitly sexual. It's the same use of the word man, Anna, in Euripides Hippolytus. There are the two passages mm -hmm. where that happens. So, yes, I made a very deliberate, uh, mm -hmm. if you like, almost a sexualization of that. And I think there is more erotic uh, and more, 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 uh, uh, explicit evocation of the sexual dimension in Deonera than in, in almost any other Greek tragedy. That's interesting because for me what it does, I think that's absolutely right and what it's one of those little micro choices really whereby in a sense the obvious thing to have done would have been and said man which then puts this in the kind of blues world of you know I've lost my man to etc and and but then loses precisely so in other words it puts it in a world where it is about sex and about adultery and who 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 your man might be or not be but it's um yeah but it, it, it was a jolt for me yeah. Karen you said as well for you yeah Oh, absolutely. No, I had it as a, as a standby question, so I'm so glad you answered it. But I think it's even more cunning than that, Oliver, because of the sound patternings just yeah. before it. You have that and you have um, a couple of other things. I read it as mate first. Mm -hmm. I didn't hear that. I think we, you know, and again, that's a kind of brutal and sexual thing going on there. So um, I loved it. And I... 
and I'm really interested that there is a background to it as, and that proves what I'm saying about the scholarly background, yeah. translator's instinct, just coalescing for that kind of brilliant moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the, uh, the, sorry, there's one more little question here. I've lost it now, where is it? Um, uh, dum, 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 it's not a little question. Um, oh yes, here we are. That's because it's in the other bit of the chat. It's about the sacred and the different languages of the sacred in different in different languages. So um, uh, Rebecca says, um, how does it feel basically to recreate or co-create the religious dimension of Greek tragedy? Mm. To open a question as that. Yeah, I mean, that's really that's really difficult because, uh, you know, I, I say, say with Antigone, uh, she uh, she is she has a lot about what's going to happen after she dies and that inevitably for modern audiences tends to bring in the idea of um an afterlife whether in paradise or whether in hell or whatever uh, at any rate some kind of after or god's love or whatever um an afterlife that is somehow more important than this life which is very definitely not the greek way of of seeing things of, of seeing eschatology um so it's it's some, something where um, the equivalence um, uh, that um, Karen was talking about is very very hard to capture. It's very very hard to to bring in sacred language that does not bring the wrong kind of consequential associations, which is what 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 there's a danger of in in the talk of what's going to happen after death. Um, in the Antigone. And also, even with things like um, uh, the word altar, I always remember Tony Harrison in his Aristotle translation translates altar as Godstone. He deliberately says God because he doesn't want to use the word altar because of, mm -hmm. because of its, its churchy uh, resonance. Yeah. That, that's the kind of micro choice that one's making all the time um, in translating from, from another culture. Mm -hmm. uh, that's not just we're not just talking about uh, ancient Greek culture by any means. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's a very, very interesting and, and, and difficult area. Yeah. Um, somebody's uh, talking about uh, from other culture. It's Rebecca again says that man and husband and human are yeah. also issues in translating Genesis from the Hebrew. In other words, th these are not obviously these are not questions specific to Greek uh, transposition or equivalence or, or so on. Um, so yeah, that's an interesting one. And actually, uh, Karen was asking about gen about uh, gender and um, referring yes. to Emily Wilson and so on. It is interesting how I mean the Greek word anthropos is not gendered, uh, and yet it's usually translated as man. Mm -hmm. And Lucy was referred to this this song, very very famous song in the Antigone, which is known as the Ode to Man. It's not. Uh, it's not only is it about humans and not about men. But it is also not an ode to them. Actually, it's a, an, a, an ode about them, about human achievement and how it can go right and how it can go wrong. Um, yep. But I did, I did find again and again that I, 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 I was making sure not to not to gender in places where the Greek was not gendered. Um, and uh, this, the. the uh, uh, and pe pe uh, and um, bringing out like in 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 um, the Oedipus, there's oh, the generations of humans. It's always translated the generations of men. Uh, mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. One last thing, because we we've just about run out of time. Um, you talked about wanting, or hey, you have a dream that you're um, the more um, well that some parts of this could be set to music. Um, I wonder if you have a particular kind of music in mind. In other words, are we talking, well, I don't want to say, um, uh, are there particular musical, contemporary musical forms, or uh, is, there, is there a notional music that you hear when you're translating this? No, but I, 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 I don't know if I do accept. Um, uh, the, the, the words must be audible. Um, I think that's terribly important. There was a there was a, a musical version done of Seamus Heaney's uh, Antigone, and actually I sat next door to him in the Globe Theatre in London when it was first performed. You couldn't hear the words, and that must be absolutely agonising for him. Um, so, if um, I, if you remember that, perhaps uh, if if you've got Greek singing in the streets um, in in fifth century Athens, the chances are that they're singing the latest thing they heard in a tragedy the other week. Mm -hmm. 
or that um, Athenian prisoners in Sicily won their, won their freedom by being able to sing the, remember the songs of Euripides and sing them to, the, to their captors. Um, I think I'd, I'd, I'd like to think in terms of a kind of music that is, that is accessible and memorable, not mm -hmm. a kind of music that is difficult. Mm -hmm. That's okay. as far as I'd go. Otherwise, I hand it over to the com composer. If you can find me a composer and a choreographer, then I would be happy. Okay, well, maybe that's our next task. Um, okay, um, I think we better wrap it up there. But before we do, I should just like to say thank you, um, first of all, to both Lucy and Karen for um, terrifically interesting, engaged, insightful, informative um, responses uh, to Oliver's work. But most of all, of course, to Oliver for the work, for the um, tremendous um, energy that you're bringing to this. And also, as Karen says, you know the skill of the scholar but also the real sense that that this this is stuff that needs to be used to be spoken to be read to be kind of um uh, out there in the world as well thank you also to everyone for the questions and for coming along um and uh my last thing to say is join us in a couple of weeks time on uh, march the third when uh, we'll be with ushashi dasgupta talking about charles dickens and the properties of fiction um Oh, our guests have disappeared. Thank you, everyone. Um, uh, see you next time. Bye. Thank you. Be there.